This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. My name's Joel. I'm the lead pastor here. And so I got to meet some people for the first time today. That was so great to see some new people stepping into being a part of this journey with us. And we're in this series that we started a couple weeks ago called Rooted, taking a look at this incredible story that we've been given that, that we call the Bible, God's words, and, and how they can be impactful for our life today as he shares his heart and he shares the reality of life with us and and what it was meant to be for all of us. And so we're, we're chasing after this to say, okay, what is this book? What do we do with it? How does it help us find life in Jesus? And so I, I don't know how familiar you are or are not with the Bible, but it's kind of an incredible book when you look at it from the standpoint of publication, <laughs> which may sound strange. So I don't know if you realize this. The Bible is one of the most published books of all time, except for the year 2007, Something extraordinary happened in the year 2007 in the world of publishing. A young upstart wizard bumped Jesus off the number one best-selling list that year. <laughs> in that year, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows sold 40 million copies. And for the first time in history of publishing, the Bible was no longer the number one bestseller. But Jesus had a comeback the next year. And ever since then, like, like this book is incredible in terms of its popularity. Uh, it's sold over 6 billion copies in its lifetime of existing in the world of publishing. And, and it's been translated into 100 different languages. So it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of this thing that has been a part of the, the world. And, and one of the reasons why it's such a big deal is that it's so much more than a book that simply tells a cool story. It tells the story, like the story of God and us. And, and when we look in the pages of this book, we see that, that, that this good God moved in the universe to, to bring life into reality and, and created this good world and then put us as people created in his image to partner with him in the goodness of this world. And yet as the story unfolds, a wrong turn happens fairly soon in that story. We, we see a brokenness take place. And and a fateful choice by the first people to not trust God and, and to do the one thing he said not to do. And in that moment, something broke. It broke in them. It broke in all of us. We broke the world. And, and yet the story tells us that the God didn't give up on us in that moment. That even in the very beginning, God made this epic promise of rescue. That he would send someone into the story, into the mess, into the brokenness to do something wonderful for us. And and that's the message of Jesus, that he steps into the story of this world we're all living in and says, I've got a life for you. And, and so it's an incredible story. And yet, regardless of how popular the Bible may be, and wherever you're at in your journey of understanding the things in it, I, I think there's some questions that we could ask about it that are kind of important questions. I, I mean, just one of the basic questions that I have as I look at this book and wonder about it is, hey, is it, is it something that I can trust? Like, is it actually reliable? Can, can I trust that, that what I'm holding in my hands today is an accurate reflection of what was written down so long ago? Kind of important questions, don't you think? It'd be kind of like if you and I were hanging out on the coastal cliffs somewhere in California, and suddenly we realized the tide was coming in, and we were trapped, and we're, we're back up against the rock wall, and we needed to get out, and we discovered a rope hanging down. And in that moment, some questions that I would have about the rope are, hey, is that a reliable rope? 
Like, can I trust that this rope that's been hanging out here on this coastal cliff for so long isn't going to snap the second we try to climb up the rope? And and then another question I'm going to have about the rope is, who put it here? (laughs) Like, can I trust the person who put this rope here that that it's actually going to lead me to life and safety? And I think those are the same questions that we can ask when it comes to the scriptures, when it comes to the Bible itself. I think there's some questions that we can wrestle with. I think one of the questions that we can wrestle with is just that simple question of, is what we have today an accurate reflection of what was written down so long ago? That's kind of an important question, because if it's been scrambled along the way, it's a cool story, but how do I know I can count on it? But then the second question I think is worth chasing after is, were they telling us the truth? Is that something that I can trust? And today, we're going to chase after those questions as we continue in our series, taking a look at the beauty of God's Word. And so I don't know if you've ever thought about this or or wrestled with it, but this is something that we want to chase after today. And so one of the scariest moments in my life as a follower of Jesus was when I was in school learning how to become a pastor. And I'm in this like high-level class about the Bible, and, and at the very first day of the class, I remember my, my teacher just says this comment, says, so because we don't have any of the original writings, we have to trust in the manuscripts. And I was like, wait, ho- hold on, what? Can, can you repeat that, please? He said, yeah, we, we don't have any of the original writings. We have a lot of copies. I never knew that. Until that moment. I, and I don't know if you don't realize that, but the, the original writings that this book is taken from, they don't exist in history anymore. And I was kind of freaked out. Like, I just thought the Pope owned them or something. Like, you know, you just go to the Vatican and there's, there's the first Genesis and there's the first writings of Jesus. I thought that's where those existed. And I was starting to panic because it, it caused me to ask the questions, how can I trust this thing? Because the things I believe about who God is and the things I believe about who Jesus is, which is kind of like the foundation of my faith, if all this is is copies of copies of copies, how on earth can I trust in this to tell me the truth, that this is reliable? And it freaked me out. And I was worried. And I remember my teacher was like, hey, don't worry. We've got copies. And we've got copies of copies. And I'm like, but what does that even mean? Like, have you ever played the telephone game with friends? Remember that? Like, you just start by whispering something into your friend's ear, and then they take what you said and whispered it into the next friend's ear, and it goes around the circle, and then it comes back, and it's like, no, I don't want to kill a cat. I said I love dogs. Like, how did that happen? Like, like how do we know this didn't happen with the, the text? Because I think there's some common concerns we can have about the writings in the Bible. Because, like, the writings that we have in the Bible, they're 2,000-plus years old. So how can we trust in their reliability? How do we know things haven't been changed over time or scrambled or edited or adjusted for human purposes? And so I think like there's kind of responses that we can have to this as we're wrestling with it. I think one response would just be a very skeptical response that would just say, well, why don't we just chuck it? Because how could we ever hope that it's reliable or trustworthy? Like how could we ever hope that there's any sense that we could trust it? It's just a blended mess, so let's get rid of it. I think that's one response. I think another response is kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum. And the other response would be like, well, no, no, you, you, just, you just have to choose to believe it regardless. Like, you just have to have this hope. But like, kind of close your eyes and just hope it's true and carry on. And yet what I think is interesting is that for either of those, that they're kind of childish responses to the questions. Because one option would be just to blindly believe in my skepticism or the other option is just to blindly believe in my beliefs? Like, is, like, couldn't we hope for something better? 
And so what do we do when it comes to the scriptures, this book? Like, what can we do to help us think that maybe there's good reason to believe that we can actually trust the rope? And so what we do is we take what we've got, we, we take what we've been given, and we can wrestle with this, and we can ask questions, and we can look at what's been handed down to us over the years and say, okay, is it reliable? Is it trustworthy? And so when we talk about the Bible, I think it's important that we realize some things about it. First of all, how many of you have ever owned one of these? Yes. How many of you are like, I did, but I don't know where it is. That's okay. That's okay, right? Yeah. When we're talking about this, the Bible, it's actually not meant, it's not, it's not a singular book. It's a collection of books, 66 different books and writings. So the word Bible actually means biblia, which means the books. So when we're holding a Bible in our hands, we're actually holding like a mini library. And, and it's a collection of these 66 different books written by many different authors over a span of thousands of years in three different languages. And yet what's really cool is that each of those books tells a piece of this overarching story, the story of God and us. And then when we look at the Bible, we see that it's split into two major sections, what we would call the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so when you're looking at the Old Testament writings in Scripture, it's like this crazy, long setup to get us to the story of Jesus. And if you read the Old Testament, it's messy. Like, it's messy. If they actually made it into a TV show, my kids couldn't watch it. Because it's the story of us, and we're kind of messy, yes? (laughs) And then we get to the other part, though, the part that we call the New Testament, and then it's the story of Jesus and and his first followers and what they discovered about him and, and, and the writings that they had as they were learning to follow him and helping each other walk with him. And so when we ask the question, like, can we trust the Bible, like, we can look at both halves and ask that question of reliability. And so we can do that with the Old Testament. We learn some neat things. But for the purpose of our time today, I'm simply going to talk about the writings of the New Testament. Because at the, at the end of the day, that's ultimately the ones that really matter to me as a follower of Jesus. Like, I want to know if I can trust what they told me about Jesus. And so when we do that, we learn some interesting things. And so when we're looking at the writings of the New Testament, the stories of Jesus and his first followers, there's some things that we do need to remember. First of all, we don't have the originals, right? We've talked about that. So we don't have the original letter that John wrote about his friend Jesus. All we have are copies of copies of copies that have been handed down over time. So what does that actually mean for what we're looking at in our hands today? I think it's also important to realize that's not just a unique issue for the Bible in the New Testament. That's actually true of any ancient historical work that we have. So we don't have the original writings of any other ancient work of literature. And so what we have is things that have been passed down through history and handed to us, that have survived over time. And so let, let's take a look at like two examples of this really quick. So up here on the chart, we're going to see something here. So what we have on this chart is, is an example of the, uh, an ancient writer and the works that they've written. So we have the writings of Aristotle. Ever heard of him? How many of you have his book right on your bedside because you just can't wait? Yeah, right? But he's the guy that helps us understand all this philosophical stuff like Socrates or Socrates, depending on how you pronounce it and all that fun stuff. And then we have another guy, a writer named Herodotus. How many of you have read his stuff? Yeah, one person, right? You, if you saw 300, then you know the works of Herodotus. Because that's the reason we know the story that made Gerard Butler, like, awesome. And I'm trying to become like him, but COVID's killing that for me. (laughs) 
But what we have with these two examples is you have this example. Here's the date that they were originally written. So Aristotle's work was sometime around this time frame, 384 or 322 BC. Herodotus, 480 to 425 BC. Here's the date of the oldest copies that we have. So for both of these ancient works, our oldest copies are sometime around the year 900 AD. It's because some monk held on to it <laughs> and then passed them down to us. And so then we have a time span between the original writing and the oldest copies for both of these, like over, over a thousand years each. And so the question is, how many of those copies do we have? Well, we have about 50 copies. Oh, go back. Don't bring that up yet. We have about 50 copies or 10 copies of their writing. And so here's, here's the thing. There's no controversy over the writings of Aristotle or Herodotus. I mean, you may not like Gerard Butler, but there's no controversy over them because we're like, yeah, that just tells us the story. And what we're able to do is take their writings and compare them like, the, like, like, so what, here's the thing. You want to have a lot of copies with a short time gap. Because what we can do is take those copies and line them up, compare them, and see, have there been changes over time? So the shorter the time gap and the more copies you have of an ancient work, the more confidence we can have in what was written. So what happens when we do this with the New Testament? What happens when we compare the New Testament writings and documents? What do we see? So now you can bring it up. Yeah, no. So the New Testament was all the different writings that we have in the New Testament. They were written somewhere between 40 and 100 A.D. Our oldest copies date to 125, 325 A.D. And so there's a time span of anywhere from 25 years to 285 years of our oldest copies to when the originals were written. So that's a pretty good gap of time, yeah? How many copies do we have of the New Testament writings? Well, would someone throw out a number? 30,000. Well, wow, you are ambitious. All right. Here's what we have. Six billion. Six billion, yes. Now, that's how many copies of the Bible have been sold. No, about 5,500 copies of the New Testament. That's pretty phenomenal. That's pretty phenomenal because what that means is that it has been carried through time so that we can have this sense of looking at them. And we're able to look at those copies and compare them to one another as they spread out through history and to see the differences. Now, when I say there's 5,500 copies, I'm talking about the original language manuscripts, Greek, that it was written in. But because the followers of Jesus took him seriously when he said, go <laughs> and make disciples, they would take those writings and they would translate them into other languages so other people could read it for themselves. And so when we take a look at all of those copies of the ancient writings, we can add an additional 19,000 manuscripts to that number and begin to line them up and compare them to one another. But because the first followers of Jesus and in the centuries that followed had a lot of questions about the things that they were reading and they would have conversations and, and interactions and debate and dialogue, we can look at the writings of people that talked about the writings of Jesus and take their writings and see that they quoted scripture. So if you ever posted something online... Like, the Bible says this, and you're like, yeah, take that, right? That's what they did in their writings. So we can take all their take that writings and see that in the writings we have of these people, there's like 86,000 quotations from the New Testament. You can almost construct the entire New Testament just from their quotations. So what that means is that we can look at all these different writings and realize that the, the manuscript evidence is crazy overwhelming, and we can compare it all and see, hey, is what I'm holding today accurate? Does it reflect what was originally written down? Like, can I put my weight on the rope and it's not going to be rotten? But then what we're able to do is say, so where are the mistakes? Or what kind of mistakes have crept in? And there are a lot. But the good news is they're not significant. 
what, I love what the writers, Geisler and Brooks, say about this, wrestling with the question then of what changes have we seen, what differences can we find in the New Testament writings? And this is what they re- read about this in their own study. They say, with all those manuscripts, there are a lot of differences, a lot of little differences. So it's easy for someone to leave the wrong impression by saying that there are 200,000 errors that have crept into the Bible when the word should be variance. So variant means there's a slight difference between one document and another document. And so a variant is counted anytime one copy is different from any other copy, and it's counted again in every copy where it appears. So when a single word is spelled differently in 3,000 copies, that is counted as 3,000 variants. Does that make sense? In fact, there are only 10,000 places where variants occur, and most of those are matters of spelling and word order. There are less than 40 places in the New Testament where we're really not certain which reading is original, but not one of those has any effect on a central doctrine of the faith. What he means is like there's not a spot where some of the documents say, and Jesus rose from the dead, and others say, nah, like that would be a problem. But there's nothing like that that would contradict the core things that we believe. And so note, the problem is not that we don't know what the text is, but that we're not certain which text has the right reading. We have 100% of the New Testament, and we're sure about 99.5% of it. And so what's cool about the New Testament and the writings that we have about Jesus and the writings of his first followers is that we can have a high degree of confidence that what we have in our hands today is an accurate reflection of what was originally written. And that's pretty cool. Whether you believe the story or not, this is a unique book in all of history in that it's been preserved in such a way for us. But then there's the other question that just I, I think is just as important, if not more important. Can I trust it? Can I trust that what they told me is the truth? Can I trust that what was written down is something that I can put my life into the story and grab onto it, especially about Jesus, especially about his message and the story of what he came to do for us, the story of his death and resurrection, that somehow him doing that for us gives us life in him. Because here's the deal. My faith is ultimately not in a book. My faith is in this person I'm told about in the book. And what I want to know is, can I trust that what they told me about him is true? Because I'm banking on it. (laughs) You know who else wanted to know if it was true? The first followers of Jesus. They wanted to know if it was true too. They're like, hey, help me understand this. And I love that when they were writing the stories, they understood this as they're trying to share the message. And so one of the early writers, a guy named Luke, he writes this. The reason he writes his story, the account of Jesus This is how Luke starts off his whole story of Jesus with these words. He says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. And they used the eyewitness reports circling among them from the early disciples. So having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. And so here's Luke writing his account of the life of Jesus, and he's writing to some friend named Theophilus, and the point he's making is, hey, I want you to know it's true. I want you to know it happened. And so the question that we then have to ask about Luke and all the others who told the first story 
is, were they telling us the truth? Or were they looking to make a quick buck by writing an international bestseller? And see, that's an important question to ask. And see, I think there's some things that are important to to consider when we look at the story they told us, the reliability of what they shared with us. And so just just a couple of questions to to wrestle with as we look at the story as they told it to us. Here's one question. As they told their story and what they encountered with Jesus, why did they include embarrassing stuff in the story? Let me think about that. If we were the first followers of Jesus and like his death was the end of the game, but we're like wanting to keep the dream alive, why would we paint ourselves to look like idiots? But that's what they look like half the time, right? Because they're there just telling the, the story of what they encountered. Like, oh, we didn't always understand what he's saying. And like, like, I'm Peter and I put my foot in my mouth all the time. And Jesus was getting arrested and I cut some dude's ear off to protect him. Like, but I look like an idiot. Like, if you're making something up, a new movement, and you know you're going to be the leader, you're going to want to paint yourself in the best of possible light, the light. And yet that's not what they do. They tell us things that just kind of make them look silly at times. Why would they do that if they're making it up? Unless, of course, they're telling us the truth. Again, like when Jesus is arrested, all of them scatter for fear because they don't want to get arrested with him. But again, if we're making the story up, I would paint the picture, oh, I wanted to stand up there and protect Jesus, but like I, I got stuck. <laughs> But again, that's not what they did. Why would they tell us something when Jesus was resurrected that the first people he went to were women? Within the first century context, that would be like laughable because the testimony of a woman in the first century context was considered meaningless. Again, you would not do that unless, of course, that's what Jesus did because he honored women. (laughs) And that's the story. So if they're making it up, They didn't do a good job making something up that would have been easily accepted in their day, unless, of course, that's what happened. But something else to consider as they're telling the story, why were they willing to die for the story they told? Because all of them, with the exception of one of the first followers, were killed because of the story they told about Jesus. And maybe we could say, well, well, so what? I mean, a lot of people die for their beliefs. That happens in our day still. And I'd say, yeah, I agree with that. I think there's just a world of difference for me or someone else dying for something that you believe is true and for them dying for a story they told if it wasn't true. So if I were to move to another part of the world where being a Christian wasn't safe, like North Korea or places in the Middle East or some pockets of dangerous areas of China, and somehow I died because I said I belonged to Jesus, would that prove the story is true? Or would that prove that I believed it was true? The second, right? But if we go back to the first followers of Jesus who told the story, if it's not true, they know it's not true. So why would they die for their own lie? If I was in that group and we're making it up and then suddenly Rome's coming knocking like, we're going to kill you if you keep talking about Jesus. I'm like, just kidding. Like, like it didn't go the way I thought, but they consistently stuck to the message to the point that they were willing to give their lives for the story. So what did they encounter? What did they encounter that transformed them? What did they encounter that turned their lives around? What did they encounter that caused them to go from cowards running in the night when Jesus is arrested to just a short time later, standing in the very city where he'd been killed and saying, he's not dead and he can change your life, he's changing our lives. What did they encounter that transformed them, that caused them to go from cowards in the night to people filled with hope and courage and power, so much so that they changed the course of history? 
because of something that changed their lives? Well, they tell us what they encountered. They tell us that they encountered Jesus Christ come back from the dead, victorious over death, come to bring us into life with him. This is what John writes, one of the first followers of Jesus, in telling what he experienced and why he's telling his story of Jesus. John writes this in John 1.14. He said, so the word became human. He's talking about Jesus. And made his home among us. And he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the Father's one and only Son. See, what John is saying is, this is somebody that we walked with and talked with, and we experienced him, and he was bigger than any of us thought. (laughs) We got to see his glory on full display, and that's why I'm writing the story, because I want you to know the same. And then as he's wrapping up his his account of the life of Jesus, later on, and near the end, in John 20, he writes these words about Jesus. He said that Jesus performed many other signs in in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, the reason they told the story is because this is what they experienced. This is what they encountered as they walked with Jesus and they saw him change their lives. They saw him do incredible things. And then when he was killed and they thought it was game over, That first Easter Sunday, Jesus got up and said, boo. (laughs) Death's got nothing on me, which means it's got nothing on you. So now follow me into new life. And they did, and it changed their life, and they told the story. And it's echoed through history to our time today. And so when we look at this book we call the Bible... These scriptures that we call God's word to us, telling us the story that we're all a part of. It's very cool to realize that the story of God in us, the story of God with us and God for us, is something that we can hold on to with a sense of confidence. Like we can trust in the rope. But it's not the story that will change your life. It's not the book that will change your life. It's the person the book is about. See, because more than just believing that we can have confidence in the book, we need to experience Jesus. We need to encounter him because he's the one who is the game changer. He's the one who meets us in the midst of the story, wherever we're at, whatever the mess or brokenness or hurt or struggle or pain we find ourselves in. He's the one who steps in and says, I am here for you. And I've come that you may have life in my name. And I've gone to bat. God has moved heaven and earth so that through Jesus, we can have the hope of a new life in him. And if you want to know his story, here it is. And it's an invitation to every single one of us to lean in and say, okay, God, if this is you talking to us, would you help me see the story I'm a part of and what you've come to do for me? Jesus, would you help me understand that you're in this world on my behalf? This is the story that changed the lives of the first followers and is still changing lives today.
And so if you don't have a Bible, as we've been talking about in the series, I want to encourage you, go and get one. And if you don't know how to do that, get it online for free. It's really cool that it's digital now. So now we have confidence that it won't be changed <laughs> over time. But if you're worried that like, they might be changing it digitally, have one of these and then you can compare it. <laughs> but here's the cool thing is you get a hold of this and you begin to read the story for yourself. You'll begin to encounter God speaking to you through the story and letting you know, I'm for you. I've come to do a work in your life. And I would encourage you, start with the stories of Jesus. Start with this book called John, which he writes to tell the story of his good friend who changed his life. And as you're reading, just be open and say, God, what, what would you want me to understand? What would you want me to understand about who you are and what you've come to do for me? So read it and study it because it was written for you. It was written so that you could understand who Jesus is, so that you could discover him for yourself and believe in him. And in believing in him, you could come to have life in his name. So this is why we're doing a deep dive looking at this book, because it tells us the story that can change our lives when we encounter this person, Jesus. And as a church, that's the person we wrap ourselves around. As a church, that's the person we chase after. That's the person we want to invite every single person to encounter for themselves. Because when you encounter Jesus, your story changes. When you encounter Jesus, he begins to rescue you out of the brokenness and struggle that you're in. And lead you into the hope of a new life with him. And so let me pray for us as we continue on this journey, as we get ready to go into a time of, of saying thanks to God through our songs and our music. Let me pray for us that we'll continue to encounter Jesus in our story today. We'll continue to encounter the hope of a new life that he's come to give us. And so, Lord, we are so grateful for you. Father, we're so grateful that you have come into the story to give us a hope of something new. And God, you, you, you've kept that story recorded for us so that we could read the truth of who you are and who we are and know that there's hope, that you are a good God who has moved heaven and earth on our behalf to bring us life in the story. And so, Jesus, would you give us ears to hear the things that you want to say to us? Would you give us ears to hear the life you want to lead us into and to trust you enough to grab onto that rope and let you pull us into the life you have for us. That how things are are not how things have to be. And so we come to you and say thank you that you have life for us. And so would you help us to see it and embrace it. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.